Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 22. There is a, a, a great book that I recommend to you. Uh, I can, uh, without equivocation, recommend it. Uh, it was written in 1678 by a man named John Bunyan. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. And if you're a Christian and you have not read The Pilgrim's Progress, you are doing a disservice to yourself. You need to pick up a copy and just read it. Now, Crossway has just put out a copy that is illustrated. So it has pictures in it. So if the last book you read had pictures in it, well, there you go. It's right there. Um, it, the Crossway version takes out a lot of the uh, Old English language, the these and the thous, and sort of the King James English that can sometimes be um, pretty lofty and, and sort of cleans that up a little bit so it's a little bit easier for us in modern English speakers to, to follow. But um, I think it's a, it's, I would commend it to you. It's written by John Bunyan. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress, and it's an allegory meaning that everybody in the story has a certain uh, uh, one-to-one correlation to somebody you might meet in real life. It's fantastic. And in this story, you find Christian who is burdened with sin, who is leaving the city of destruction and is walking to um, the city of, of the king. And he's on his journey. And the whole story is about that pilgrim's progress. And along the way, he meets Hopeful. And Christian and Hopeful are journeying for some time together, and at some point they turn aside from their journey, and they end up sleeping in a field that they find out belongs to the giant despair. And the giant despair takes them captive in the castle of doubt. And he puts them in a cage, and they are locked away from Wednesday to Saturday without food or without water. And as... as the name would indicate they begin to grow in despair. And so despair comes to them and he beats them regularly until they are quite despondent. They don't know what to do. And at one point, giant despair comes to them and he offers them a way out. Suicide. You can get out by knife or noose or poison, he says. There are times in the Christian life where despair can overtake us. And like Christian and Hopeful, you find yourself seemingly in the midst of a cage, being beaten by giant despair, and you don't know which way to turn. It has this feeling, as some have put it, as you're being enclosed in a cave. And inside that cave, you're surrounded by complete and total darkness. And as the psalmist will put it in Psalm 88, it seems that darkness is your closest friend. David, in our passage this morning, seems to be in such a situation in Psalm 22. Let's read there. Psalm 22, 1-31, to the choir master. According to the doe of the dawn, which is probably like the tune or something like that, the psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took, from me, took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a heavy text this is. I pray that we can wrap our arms around it, that we can understand it, that we can wrestle with it, that we can see it and savor 
what is said in it, that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. We are feeling creatures. Our feelings often trump the things that we know to be true in our rational minds. And it's not enough, I don't think, to know something. You have to feel it too. Some of you are married, and if you are, your spouse has put a ring on your finger, and with that ring comes an implicit knowledge that your spouse loves you. But that ring means very little if you don't also feel that your spouse loves you. You may work for a company and your workplace may give you a raise regularly. They may tell you even that they value you in the amount they pay you or the amount they increase your salary. But that means very little if you don't go to work feeling valued by the people that you work with. Our feelings, though, can often be fickle. Sometimes they can be irrational. I always like to think of myself as having the rational mind, being the rational person in the relationship, and my wife is much more in touch with her feelings than I am. I don't think I'm explaining organic, organic chemistry here to you. I think you all probably have related to something like that in your own relationships. All of that changed, though, when I faced a wall of depression. When I ran face-first, into depression, it left me governed day and night by my feelings. Not by my rational mind, but by my feelings. What I felt to be true in my heart. Every morning, I was washed over with sorrow, so much so that I could not tell day from night or friend from enemy. Some have called this a cave. Of darkness, And that's exactly what it felt like. Winston Churchill and others have also famously referred to it as the black dog. It followed me around by day, biting at my heels, and at night, laid on my chest. Imagine, just for a moment, waking up in the morning... And sitting by your bed is the black dog of depression waiting to bite your ankles as soon as your feet touch the floor. And try as you might, nothing you can do can shake him off of your scent. Your spouse and your friends cannot see him. And when you tell them that he's there and that's the reason you're feeling the way you are, they tell you in one way or another... Just snap out of it. In your heart, you know certain truths. 
You might even tell them to others. But those truths are of little comfort when you feel alone. For instance, you might know Jesus promises at the end of Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But what does it mean when it seems that the only thing that will be with you to the end of the age is the black dog of depression? David, for the majority of Psalm 22, is crying out because he feels abandoned. He feels alone. We know from all the other psalms, and even from this psalm, all the things that God has done. We know in this very psalm, He is rehearsing all the things that God has done for him. That God has not left him. He has no reason to feel as though God has left him. But no matter how mighty one might be, no matter one's status as king or priest or prophet, all the truths of Scripture seem to hold very little weight when you feel as though your world is collapsing. The psalm is also famously quoted by Jesus when He is hanging on the cross. So it gives it special significance even now for us. But what we find as we look at this text is that the king of God's kingdom, David in this case, is stricken with grief. In fact, we see that the passage is actually divided into two parts and it turns on a dime at the end of verse 21. In the second half of verse 21, it changes completely. But the first half of the passage is him stricken with grief, driven to cry out to the Lord before the final end where he explores the joys of salvation that he has actually found. So I want us to look at both sides of this passage because there's tremendous disparity between what David is going through in the beginning versus what he eventually gets to in the end. So first, I want to look at in this passage the darkness that grief brings. Now, we aren't told specifically what David is going through. He mentions, of course, there at the beginning, being surrounded by enemies and being despised by people. And we're not sure how much of this is just poetic exaggeration, like you might do in a poem, and how much of this is literally enemies surrounding him physically, like might have been true toward the end of his life when Absalom, his son, marches in and drives him off into exile. Um, perhaps it could be a situation such as that, or maybe some other one in his life. We're not entirely sure. But what we can easily recognize is that David is in a great deal of pain in this passage. We see first his loneliness. He expresses that right out of the gate. First, he says that he's forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he asks this famous question that Jesus asks on the cross. Jesus says the same thing when he's hanging there on the cross. He cries out in prayer, and yet he is receiving absolutely no answer. His prayers don't go past the ceiling. But it's here that we see this back and forth between 
what David feels in his heart versus what he knows to be true in his head. In his heart, there is loneliness. He's forsaken by God. He's a worm and not a man. You can see that in verses 6 to 8. He says that. He's a worm and not a man. He is mocked by mankind, those who ridicule him and taunt him with these words. Look at verse 8, where he says, He trusts in the Lord. This is them mocking him as they're gathering around. He trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let God rescue him, for he delights in God. But in between those sessions of ridicule, David's also confronted by what he knows deep down. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So even though it appears that you have forsaken me. Here's what I know. I do know that all of my fathers trusted in you. All of my fathers relied on you. And you answered them. They were not put to shame. You answered Abraham. You answered Isaac. You answered Jacob. You stayed with Moses and Joshua and Samuel. So there's two aspects to this. One is, David is saying, you're you're not the kind of God who has historically abandoned His people. That's not characteristic of you. That would be very out of character. I know that to be true. But the second way you could take it is David saying, well then why have you forgotten me? This could be taken either way. However, I think David is using it as a sign of hope. After he calls himself a worm and not a man in verse 6, he reminds himself, look at verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Not only have you been there for my fathers, you've been there for me as long as I can remember. From the earliest days of my youth, I think David is understanding that although the Lord feels very absent from him, he has not historically been absent. That's uncharacteristic of him. He's not historically been absent in my life. And so... If he hasn't been absent historically, and I've been able to trust him in the past, perhaps I can trust him with my future. So what is David doing here in the midst of this depression and loneliness and angst that he's feeling? He's reminding himself of what is true about God. He's rehearsing what he knows to be fact about God. He's reminding himself of those truths. He's reminding himself of the way God has responded to him in the past. It's in reading this psalm, I think, that we can see that 
David feels the same way that so many of us feel at various points in our lives. Abandoned. Unanswered by God. Well, here are my prayers. I'm lifting them up to Him. But where do they go? What happens when they leave my mouth? I see no activity that comes from them. They're unanswered. You pray, and the heavens are, it seems, silent completely. You feel such intense suffering, and no amount of rationality can break through the intensity of the loneliness that you feel. But it's not just the intensity of the loneliness. It's also the intensity of the enemies. Look at what he says about the enemies. Notice that in verse 12, they're not just men. These enemies are not just mankind that has surrounded him. No, they're strong bulls of Bashan, which we all know how strong they are. We're all very familiar and well acquainted with the bulls of Bashan. Bashan was an area out east of Galilee where they had plentiful crops and great harvest and so normally, and so they had rich livestock, bulls and goats that were fat and big and strong, the kind of bulls that make for good brisket. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know. But you don't really know Austin. That's where to get good brisket. That's where the bulls of Bashan are harvested. Uh, <laughs> but they're not just bulls. They're roaring lions in verse 13. They're dogs, he says in verse 16. And they're oxen in verse 21. Specifically, or yeah, specifically, he asks that he be saved from these enemies. Why? He's calling them animals because they don't behave like human beings. In other words, they don't respond to rationale. They respond like wild animals. They're incapable of listening to reason and they only thirst for blood. That's all they want is to kill Him. They won't stop until He's dead. It's at this point where we might be inclined to tell David, you're the king of Israel, man. Snap out of it. You know that's not true. God put you on this throne. You're a prophet and you're a priest and you're a king. Your enemies are also His enemies. You know that's true. You're exaggerating the circumstances. What do you feel? It's not reality. Perhaps you've either gone through depression like this, or maybe you know someone who has gone through depression like this. A darkness so deep that thoughts of suicide become rational. At which point you might say, snap out of it. That's not reality. You're exaggerating the situation. Are they? Let's think about that for just a second. We turn to the cross of Christ. Is it any wonder 
that a favorite psalm of the gospel writers, in fact, a favorite psalm of Jesus, in the midst of the crucifixion, is this psalm. A favorite psalm of the gospel writers and Jesus himself to draw a parallel from the Old Testament to the crucifixion of Jesus is this psalm. Listen to how Matthew uses this psalm. First, obviously, he records the words of Christ in verse 46 of Matthew 27. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which is Aramaic, obviously. And that means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's drawing everyone, Jesus is, is drawing everyone's attention to Psalm 22. Not merely the first line of Psalm 22. He's not merely drawing your, line, your attention to the fact that He is, at that moment, forsaken by God. He's demonstrating that the whole depth, every bit of Psalm 22 is applicable, indeed written, for this very moment in human history. The whole psalm is written for this moment in human history. Now, there is no possible way we could ever understand or fathom the depths of forsakenness that Christ felt on the cross. There's no doubt that we're to listen to that first line and realize that at that point, the Son of God is becoming sin for us. And as such, He is being separated and forsaken truly by God Himself, by God the Father. There's no doubt about that. But we cannot even fathom how deeply true that first line is of Him. But the Gospel writers are going to draw your attention not just to the first line of Psalm 22, but to every bit of Psalm 22 for the rest of their gospel, for the rest of the account of the crucifixion. Not only in the dividing of his garments and casting lots and various other things. Listen to Matthew 27, 43. He trusts in God. This is the Gentiles surrounding Jesus on the cross. The Jews and the Gentiles surrounding him on the cross. They, the Jews say he trusts in God. Let him deliver, let God deliver him now if he desires it. What does that sound like? Sounds like verse 8 of this psalm. Or perhaps in verse 35 of Matthew 27. And when they had crucified Him, they divided His garments among them and, and by casting lots. Matthew's drawing your attention to the rest of Psalm 22. All of this applies to this moment, like in verse 18, where the dogs cast lots for His clothes. And we look closely at the scorn that Christ faced on the cross what is it that we see there exactly? If he's saying this psalm applies right there to the crucifixion, what are we saying about this? I think what we see is the reality of a fallen and sinful world toward the righteousness of God. That perhaps what David is describing what Jesus is echoing there on the cross is the reality of the world that we actually live in. 
This is the fury of sinful man. It's the seething hatred of Satan toward the beauty of the kingdom of God. It's the evils of the devil who is the roaring lion unfurling his wretched vengeance against the most glorious offering God could possibly ever give. They're targeting the Son of God who is perfect in every way. This is the reality of what this psalm is depicting. Sinful man at its absolute worst. But then, if they treated him that way, how will the world see you? Jesus says in John 15, 18 to 20, 21, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things... They will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. When we look at the realities of this psalm, and then we look at the literal fulfillment of these realities on the cross of Christ, and then we transfer the realities of what happened to Christ on the cross to us, his disciples, I think we can actually see something really important as it pertains to our brothers and sisters who are in the midst of depression, who are in the midst of loneliness, who are in the midst of agony and lament of many kinds. This is what the world has to offer you. Perhaps what they're seeing in depression, what we see in depression and sorrow and agony, is the glory of the world unfurled. This is what the world has to offer. Perhaps it's just a glimpse of what that would look like without the hope of the kingdom of God. And the people who are in the midst of it, feel as though they're walking through hell. Because they are. So maybe it's not fair to say snap out of it. But sometimes fairer to say to the Christian, snap into it. The question usually comes at some point, why is God allowing this? Or in David's words, at the opening of this psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps they're experiencing the fallen world to the full. Perhaps depression for for the Christian is experiencing the fallen world and being unable 
to at that moment feel the beauty of the kingdom of God. But this is why the Psalms are really important for us as Christians to read. First, because the Psalms give us brutal honesty. The Psalms are brutally honest about what we're going to find in the world. The psalmist is actually discouraging you from saying, I'm doing okay if you're anything but. The psalmist is saying, that's a lie. What's the matter with you? You're not okay. Don't tell people that you are. And it encourages you, as the psalmist will say in Psalm 88, to say, darkness is my closest friend, if it's true. Because as children of the light, what the psalmist is encouraging us to do is speak about the darkness for what it really is. It's darkness. Not to put on a brave face and to make everyone else think you're okay when you're absolutely not, but to call darkness what it actually is. It's darkness. And if you're being real, you would feel this way too from time to time. But the second reason that the Psalms are really important for Christians to read is not only because they're brutally honest, but because they give us a language for hope in the midst of the cave. David feels hopeless but he reminds himself of the ages before where saints have gone, have lived, and who've gone through the same things that he has gone through. He is, as it were, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. He feels like a worm, and yet, God has been faithful to me in the past. Perhaps that means that He will continue to be faithful to me in the future. As Christians who have the Spirit of God in us, who now have citizenship in the kingdom of God, we need to hear the hope of heaven even when we're living in the darkness of hell. Which is particularly challenging. Because if you've ever had depression or you've known someone who has the last thing they want to hear is a message of hope when they feel hopeless. That's the last thing they want to hear. And there's a third reason that the Psalms are really important, but first, let's look at the joy of salvation that turns here in verse 21, at the second half of verse 21. Hope arrives for David in the midst of his, his languishing, and he gets some sort of answer to prayer on the second half of 21. Look there in 21b. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. He goes on to tell the congregation exactly what kind of hope is in store for those who persevere in faith. Look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. 
all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. This promise that he's giving here is only available to those who are in Christ. See, this is actually the third reason why the Psalms are really important for us to read. Not only because they're brutally honest, not only because they give us language of hope in the midst of darkness, but because they point us to Christ. All of these Psalms are about Him. Of the 263 times the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, 116 of those quotations are from the Psalms. Think about that for a second. 263 quotations in the old, in, from the, of the Old Testament and the New. 263. And 116 of them are from the Psalms. That's not to mention all the allusions, which aren't direct quotes, but are the authors of the New Testament sort of winking to you about things that have happened in the Old Testament. It's not even counting them. That's just direct quotations. 116 out of 263 all in one book, the Psalter. That's no coincidence. The New Testament writers are telling you something, not only about how important it is that we understand suffering in the midst of this world, but it's also important that you understand that the many lamentations that are in this book, that make up the book of Psalms, all of those lamentations are pointing to Christ Himself. The one who suffered those sorrows. And what are they saying by quoting the Psalms and the lamentations that happened there within? They're telling you that that Christ that you worship, He suffered with you. He felt what you feel. Not empathy, sympathy. He's been there. The reason that Jesus calls out the psalm on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Believe it or not, it's not so that you'll look at the cross and you'll think about that first line that he quotes there and goes, Oh man, David only thought he was forsaken. That is real forsakenness. That's not why he's calling that out. There's no chapters and verses in the scroll of the Psalms in his day. He's calling out the first line of the psalm so that your attention will be drawn to every line in that psalm. So that you will see that it is all coming to fruition here in the suffering of Christ. That He is surrounded by Gentiles who wag their heads at Him. Who literally quote the psalm back to Him. Let Him trust in God. But it's also to say to you in the midst of your suffering exactly what is said in verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. See, He's not spurning your suffering. He's not telling you you think you have sorrows. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at my suffering. Yeah, this, this is real suffering. He's not saying that. He's saying here on the cross, I'm making your suffering make sense. There's a purpose. I'm bringing about its end. And what is that end? The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. You who are afflicted, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He's connecting all the events in your history together and demonstrating for you right there that they are sitting in the palm of His hand and He has intention for them and He's going to use them. He's saying on that cross, I'm your friend in the cave with you. I'm not outside the cave calling you to walk out. No. I'm in the cave with you. And I'm going to lead you out. All you who are afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. He's with you. But Jesus' connection to this psalm also reminds us that not only is He suffering with us, but that God had not forgotten you. He hasn't left you in the cave and forgotten all about you. Remember those prayers that you pray that you think they just, well, they just hit the ceiling and I don't, I don't know, after that they just don't go anywhere. Think they just fall down and hit the floor. After that, I'm not sure. No, in the cross he's telling you, I heard all of them. In fact, David even points this out in verse 24. Read it. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Forsaken you? Forgotten you? No, friend. Not at all. He's heard every cry. And not only has He heard the cries, He aims to rid you of their sorrow. Not just ridding the sorrow, but actually wiping away every tear. Do you understand the difference between merely ridding you of sorrow and wiping away every tear that He promises in Revelation? Do you understand the difference between that? When Christ comes back and brings His kingdom to the full, He could, just like men in black, hold up the little wand that flashes the light and just erases your memory altogether. He could do that. He could just, poof, and you've forgotten all about every sorrow that you ever had. All the frowns just magically get turned upside down. You didn't even remember that you did frown, ever. That's not what He promised Instead, he promises that he's going to wipe away every tear. Meaning that there is acknowledgement of the affliction. That's real tears. That's real affliction. 
Making everything go away, that's the way a dad solves the problem. When the kids hurt. Wiping away the tears is how the mom solves the problem when the kid is hurt. And he's going to address this like a mother. Wiping away the tears, acknowledging the suffering and the pain and the sorrow and the frustration is real. Why? Because you live in a fallen world. And that's what it's like. That's exactly what sin does. And that pain and that depression and that sorrow that you feel is very real. It's not fake. It's not imaginary. The black dog that follows you around is really following you around. It's attached to you. And it's a consequence of living in a fallen world. He's not erasing your memory of the tears. What he's doing is rewriting their meaning for eternity future. They mean something different now. And all of our tears become old tales of God's kindness to us. Of His mercy and His faithfulness. Are you in the midst of Doubting Castle? Are you being beaten by giant despair? If so, if that's you, I want to encourage you to remember the promises of God. Promises of God are not merely sunshine and daffodils. They're not. There are some sunshine and daffodils. But there's also, in this world, you will have trouble. There's fear not. I have overcome the world. But in this world, you will have trouble. That's also a promise. We need to remember them all. Not just the good ones. The ones that make us feel maybe not so good. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you can't relate to that. Maybe you've never been in that kind of situation. And you're praying that you never go through that kind of situation. But maybe you know somebody who is. Remind them of the promises of God. I didn't say preach at them. I said sit down with them on the couch. Put your arm around them and weep with them. And acknowledging what they're feeling at this moment is very real. And that in this world we will have trouble, but this is not the end. And the sorrow and the depression and the anxiety and the angst will not have the final say. But there is a banqueting table that we will gather around where Christ will distribute the elements and depression will be no more. Trust in His promises. In the end of that scene in castle despair, or castle, whatever it is, doubting castle, being beaten by giant despair, Christian considers whether or not to take 
giant despair up on his offer and commit suicide. And it's there that his friend Hopeful reminds him of the promises of God. And it's at that point where they begin to pray. And Christian is reminded, all of a sudden, of what God's Word says. And he says this, What a fool I have been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this when I could just as well walk free. I have a key in my pocket next to my heart called promise that will, I am sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Trust in the promises of God. That in this world you will have trouble, but He has overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone in this room going through the terrible feeling of depression, of anxiety, of fear, of loneliness, of loss. No doubt, many in this room are remembering those who have passed, who are not there anymore. They will not see again in this life. I pray that you would give them a special kind of comfort. Pray that through the Lord's Supper that we take in a moment, or perhaps the text or the sermon or the songs, maybe the prayers, they might call to mind the reason we endure. The reason we endure pain and the sorrow and the loss. The reason that we maintain hope in the return of Christ is to experience the glory of the resurrection and to live forever in His kingdom unstained by sin again. Pray that you would bring that to the mind of every person in this room, especially those who are in the midst of suffering right at this very moment. In Jesus' name.